Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hi, Will. How's it going? I am doing so well. I just got back from a little bit of summer vacation, and I'm super excited about this episode. Well, I've been really enjoying following along on all of your art adventures across Europe. So I'm so curious, what's on your radar? Well, now that I'm refreshed from a little bit of vacation, I'm super jazzed because my inbox has been overflowing as we're about to hit fair season in New York. There is the long-established Armory Art Fair that's happening, as well as the Independent. So I'm really, really excited. And while most of our listeners might be more familiar with the long-established Armory Show, we're very excited about this week's guest because we have one of the co-founders of the Independent Art Fair to give us background on how the fair originated and also give us a sneak peek into this year's program. And before we get into that interview, which is going to be amazing, quick reminder to listeners to follow us on Instagram at Art from the Outside Podcast and to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, we are thrilled to be joined by the visionary Elizabeth D, founder and director of the Independent Art Fair. Conceived and initiated in 2009, the Independent has rapidly become one of the most important and influential art fairs globally and will be hosted at New York's Battery Maritime Building in just a few weeks from September 9th to September 12th. In addition to her role as founder of The Independent, Elizabeth is a seasoned art world professional. She opened her first gallery in New York's Soho District in 1997 and proceeded to launch her first public space in 2002 in Chelsea, working with world-class artists including Adrian Piper, Ryan McNamara, and John Giorno. Last July, Elizabeth actually became director of the recently established John Giorno Foundation, an organization dedicated to grant-making and preserving the legendary artist's work. In some exciting news, the foundation will actually be facilitating a posthumous exhibition of the artist's work in London this October. So lots to look forward to. Elizabeth, it's such a joy and an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. It's nice to see you too. I was fascinated. You were explaining that you are in what used to want to be <laughs> William Burroughs bedroom. Is that, did I hear, did we hear correctly? Yes. Lamont has published a magazine feature cover story on the building that I'm currently dialing in from, which is 222 Bowery, which is the home of John Giorno and now the home of John Giorno Foundation. Uh, But it's also a place where many, many artists have come and worked or collaborated with John and his, you know, generation of artists. And I'm actually currently in the famous bunker, which was (laughs) occupied as a site of many parties and performance collaborations, and also uh, the home of William Burroughs for almost 15 years. 
And so I'm actually in the William Burroughs bedroom that we have in collaboration with the Burroughs estate kept uh, exactly as he left it. Uh, and we do share it from time to time with visitors. And it is kind of a an amazing, mind-blowing experience to be in here, but it's also the quietest <laughs> place in the building. So that's why I'm I'm calling in with the spirit of, of uh, Burroughs and, and John with us. So that's great. Well, Elizabeth, as a fellow Midwesterner, I was actually just having such a joy researching your career and learning about a little bit about your art world journey. But I wondered um, if we could switch a little bit to your personal history and if you could share a bit about your background and, you know, whether you recall a specific cultural experience or artwork that really inspired you to pursue the arts. You know, it's, it's great to know we're both from the Midwest. Uh, I was born in Chicago and grew up primarily in southwestern Ohio, southeastern Indiana, and Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and, you know, I come from a family that is from both Appalachian, Kentucky and and the Midwest uh, on my mother's side uh, is the Kentucky side. So there was very much a, mi- a big migration that happened in the 1950s and 60s um, across the southern part of what we consider the Rust Belt. Um, and my uh, maternal grandmother and grandfather were very much a part of that. Uh, that movement and were um, farmers uh, and uh, and moved to you know find jobs and, and primarily in factories. So I come from that that background and I'm very proud of that. But growing up, we did not have a lot of access to museums, uh, but it was something that we did as part of our summer vacations. So I remember quite early we did. We used to do car trips for summer vacation with my parents, and we would either go to the South and visit great writers' homes, uh, which sort of spurred me on a, life, a lifelong uh, fascination of literature and uh, started my book collecting, which started quite early. And then we also went to museums, and, and I remember particularly the Art Institute of Chicago. I'm sure a lot of people feel this way about that encyclopedic museum but looking at you know Cezanne and uh, Impressionism and you know Manet it just you know even as a young child I I was obsessed with uh, you know the movements of the you know 19th century and the early 20th century and I thought it was always something that I, I wanted to be involved in I also was always um, making artwork as a kid and I really never stopped uh, and that was also a big part of it. So both the looking, the making, and those early experiences really were so fundamental, I think, to my journey, which, you know, kind of unfolded by chance. Yeah, and I read somewhere that you actually, you played in the symphony orchestra, you studied dance, you also had a studio practice. So what was it that made you pursue kind of the visual arts, having been exposed to all of these different art forms at an early age? I mean, I think in the 80s, I was like the overscheduled kid. <laughs> my mom. <laughs> Too many activities. Oh Too God. many play dates. I don't know. Yeah. My, my mom, I think because she grew up in such a rural environment, really wanted my sister and I to have every opportunity to, to, that she didn't have as a child. And I think that was very much, I'm the oldest. So I think I really took advantage of that. Yeah, I, I, you know, ballet for sure. Um, and then, you know, primarily classical music. And that's something that started, you know, 
I think like many of us, you know, at the age of five or so with piano. And then eventually I transitioned to classical cello and played in a traveling symphony orchestra and continued to to practice classical cello all the way through my right. early, early 20s. Yeah, it's something I've, um, right on. yeah, yeah, it's uh, definitely been a part of, a part of that uh, situation. I remember my parents when we were in Ohio uh, wanted to have um, created a Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra summer concert. And so one of my earliest experiences was helping stamp envelopes and make tickets and send out tickets for the concert that we had in our town once a year uh, for where the Chicago, or I mean, the Cincinnati Symphony would come and uh, and perform. And so we also got to meet the, you know, meet the musicians and it was such a great experience, but it was also about production, right? Putting on a big, a big Mm. show. And I think that my parents are very much, uh, they're very open-minded and curious and wanted to um, try and connect things for us. And I think it was a great experience for us to do that together as a family and to to be involved in that way. It sounds to me like you very much have an artist mind. But instead of becoming an artist looking to make a living from your practice, you went into the commercial art world working for Luring Augustine at a certain point. What was it that sort of led you, you know, when you were at, was there a sort of juncture where you said, I can double down and get an MFA or I can sort of explore the commercial art world what was that decision like for you, if that even was a decision? No, it was a huge decision um, for me at the time, I, you know, looking back. And I think I made the right decision uh, looking back, too. Uh, I was actually, before co-directing Larry Augustine with Michelle Macaron, uh, I was in San Francisco prior to moving to New York, and I was working for my mentor, Daniel Weinberg, Dan was the first uh, gallery to represent on the West Coast um, his generation of artists that are still some of my all-time favorite artists, um, Sherry Levine, um, Richard Tuttle, uh, Richard Archwager, uh, Robert Gober, uh, and Jeff Koons. So I was the artist liaison to many of those artists for him. At first, you know, I started off, he was my first job out of college. And then I sort of became a trusted right hand for him and managing the artists. And I, at that time, still had my studio and was, was, making, was making work and I was thinking about going to graduate school. But uh, then I began selling art. And I started to realize that um, there was a creativity in being able to be the proxy for the artwork and the artists to other collections. Mm. And because we worked with such incredible collectors, uh, you know, we worked with, you know, SF Mama and Gary Garrels. We worked with um, the Boses and the Haas families. Uh, it was really, we were really dealing with material that was priceless. And it just felt like the contributions that we could make were so strong in build, helping assist building these collections and, and working with artists. And, and I just felt that I should maybe put my sense of going back to school, 
you know, on hold and move to New York and give that a chance. And that's something that I, a decision I made in, in dialogue with, with Dan, um, my boss at the time. And he was really instrumental in helping set me up in New York and introducing me. And that was, that was great. I mean, the art world at that time, you know, we're talking around, you know, 2000 was incredibly small and very much a cottage industry. You know, you know, Dan would call up, Lawrence and Roland and I would be there the next week sitting down and meeting them. It was, everything was very simple. (laughs) Everything was through the phone uh, or fax. uh, And 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 people just, (laughs) it was, you know, it was really, um, it was very much a community uh, that it was great because, uh, you know, as someone who really had no track record whatsoever, me, I was able to really meet the owners of all these major galleries from the time I was 20 to 23 years old. Um, and they all remember meeting me at that time. And now I still know them and they were like, you know, they've known me now for 20 years. So it's, it's fun. <laughs> it's fun that we, it, I feel very fortunate that we started, uh, the art world was this small when I started and now it's become a global industry and it's, it's something totally different, but it's the same people are still around. Uh, mm-hmm. It just changed considerably in these last, uh, you know, particularly 10 years, but last 20 years. Speaking of change, I know when you first moved to New York, it wasn't, you had this, it's this glamorous gallery job working on Madison Avenue, but I know it was, you know, financially pretty difficult to work as a, at a gallery at that time. I think you were making something like $18,000 a year. Something like um, that. Could you talk a little bit about that double <laughs> life that you were living? Like, you know, meeting collectors uptown and then going to your pay by the week hotel on the Bowery at night. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I thought that was such a fascinating story when I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and know. a testament to you, too. I yeah. mean, that doesn't sound easy. No, I had to fight to be here. But I think that we all did, you know, at the time when I think about the sacrifices that uh, that we've all made. Uh, the sacrifices are a little different now, but... Um, I wouldn't say they're any more or less challenging than the sacrifices I had to make. Um, yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, I don't think my parents were fully aware of what I was doing, but uh, <laughs> I definitely did live in a residence hotel uh, when I first moved to New York just to raise enough money over a period of time to get an apartment, uh, which I ultimately did you know, within six months or so. But yes, that was uh, an incredible experience. Uh, I think the room was, you know, a third of the size of the William Burroughs bedroom I'm in here now. (laughs) 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 And I think my cello was also in that space because I brought, I I basically moved across the country in a car. So I, I had... I had the cello in the back. I remember that. And then I had some some bags and some books and everything else was was that. But I mean, I, I had to, there was no kitchen. So, uh, you know, the East Village was a wonderful place where you could eat well and cheaply. And there were, you know, there was chess in the park, you know, for entertainment. And it's, you know, there were no laptops and Wi-Fi, you know, at this time in my life. <laughs> Uh, it was actually, looking back, I think very fondly of that time, but, you know, I'm also, thank God nothing happened, but it just, it was, uh, it was something I did. And I, I think that's a sacrifice that I made, chose to make. And I, and I, you know, I didn't at the time think that 
I should should come in with everything sewn up. Uh, you know, that wasn't my expectations were very different. I was I was happy to have the opportunity. I'm curious, you know, you were obviously at, you know, a co-director at Lowering Augustine. And then it was sort of around 1998, I believe, that you started experimenting with having your own gallery. And then if I'm correct, it was in 2001 that you formally launched. I mean, can you walk us through that process of taking that leap and the joy or, you know, the whole experience of of starting your own gallery? You know, I being a gallerist in that time period was something everybody wanted to do. Uh, it, you know, maybe I don't know how that would equate. Maybe in the last ten years, I don't know what the equivalent would be. But the idea of becoming a gallerist now feels very challenging i think to people commonly because they understand what the the sacrifices truly are they understand what the costs how the costs have escalated and i i don't believe i could have had a gallery today because of the way how difficult it is to get access to real estate in the city and how expensive it's become there's a totally different reality for galleries that are opening today where you have to have Securing space is securing a 15-year lease, and it's it's a huge commitment financially. It's a huge commitment professionally. There's just so much competition. Whereas when I started, it was there were 20 major galleries in the city. Of course, there were lots more, but in terms of that league, that echelon, that that playing field, it was not as uh, big or global as it is now in New York. So there were 20 galleries to work for if you wanted to stay wow. in in that vicinity. And that's how that played out. When I started, I really began first bringing some artists of my generation on consignment into the back room of Loring Augustine with Lawrence and Roland's support. And then meeting uh, one, one of these artists that I was... Um, collaborating with uh, was, an, was an artist by the name of Les Rogers, who actually lived around the corner from Loring Augustine and had a, quite a large studio on 118 Mercer Street. So he said, why don't we just um, arrange for you to take over part of the studio? If you're willing to help pay for the, you know, the, the wall building, then you can have a space here. And so that's where I began experimenting with, you know, exhibition making, working with unrepresented artists, and it was great. Well, you mentioned how times have changed and how, like, this next generation of dealers have the structure to kind of grow within these larger galleries. But what you described just sounds so romantic, like having this independent entrepreneurial spirit to kind of go at it your own way. So I wonder, you know, whether you think that's a positive or a... I mean, I think it's great that everyone's, like, able to make a living wage now, but... You know, I wonder, does that kind of stifle innovation and experimentation um, if everyone's kind of part of these bigger multi-country conglomerate kind of? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword. And with Independent, we work with, you know, Listen Gallery, which is run by Alex Logsdale, who's definitely moving into that second generation, is doing an incredible job, has made 
New York, the New York Gallery feel like the headquarters of the of the gallery, not an outpost of a gallery in London. And that's a really hard thing to do, particularly for a gallery that's been around for 40 plus years. And I do think all of this is positive, but if you want to, what gets me up in the morning is being able to create a market that doesn't exist or create a, you know, or help contribute to what becomes the codification of something that I know deserves its, its place and being a part of that process. What's kind of mind-blowing to me is that while you were running your gallery, you also innovated again and launched The Independent um, in 2010. And I think that sort of innovative approach, from what I understand, was kind of central to the reason why you launched Independent. I mean, can you talk us through what it was like launching Independent? (laughs) It is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's also not something I did alone, um, like a lot of this. Uh, I don't know how many listeners remember, but during the 2008 financial crisis, and actually this is a great way to segue what we were talking about, uh, Amitha, about how the gallery system has changed. Um, that generation of galleries that started in the late 90s, early 2000s, by the time we got to the 2008 recession, only five of those 50 galleries were left standing. Um, wow. Yeah. So I went through, you know, <sighs> a um, cataclysmic uh, generational shift. Uh, what was so positive and easy to do at the beginning, which, you know, we're so thankful for, became increasingly impossible to sustain because it was the beginning of the changes. And these recessions were really, well, 9-11 being the first was cataclysmic. And then 2008 financial recession was after that. So there was a lot of questioning going on about, could we even, should we even think these are the ways we need to be uh, working? You know, is the gallery model doesn't need to change. So that was already there because of what we had in that, that seven, eight-year period. And uh, a huge group of us, um, and this is the thing that I started first, uh, got together and founded a project called X Initiative. And it was designed to occupy the former DIA building on 22nd Street, which most people now know as where Hauser & Worth was until most recently. Um and the Dia building was a place that we all have fond memories of going to, and it was a really pure building in many senses, and it was empty. And so we got, I, I was able to get the keys and organize kind of a Kunsthalle project there for 12 months uh, with about 80 people. So it was not only gallerists, but also museum curators, historians, artists. Uh, and this is where Matthew Higgs and Massimiliano Gioni and others were uh, very active in programming shows. And so we worked on this as a group and uh, we had free and this rent was in 2008? This is 2008 to 2009. Wow. And just for listeners who aren't familiar, Matthew Higgs, amazing um, former director of White Columns, which is an incredible space in still New director. York. Still director. Still director. Oh, still director. Cur- cur- um, current director. Yes, forgive me for that. <laughs> and also... Massimiliano is the chief curator at the New Museum. So, Elizabeth, you were drawing on some real talent then and and obviously still do now, but 
I, I, I have to call out flag those names. <laughs> you know, they are they're so game for making things happen. I always think like times where things are really unstable kind of create a lot of interesting uh, work, if, but it's work that has to be highly collaborative in order for it to take place because, you know, like that building, the situation, it was so such a unique moment. And you have to remember, like, the idea of a museum curator, a nonprofit director, and a gallerist and an artist working together to create shows was con- kind of considered taboo. I mean, it was it was like museums do their thing, and the commercial world does its thing, and commercial and nonprofit worlds don't shouldn't mix too much. Artists can mm. transient between the two, but they also have to be very careful. So it was it, there was very much a church and state kind of br- boundary shift going on there too, which this project kind of encapsulated, and. Like at X Initiative, Massimiliano curated a great show of uh, Hans Hacke, which became a, you know, kind of a first version of the show he ultimately did at, at the New Museum later. But again, an artist like Hans Hacke, or we also did, I curated a retrospective of Derek Jarman's Super 8 films. So like things uh, like love. that kind of informed, yeah, wonderful. And like, I guess this opportunity in many ways kind of shed a light on the need to create platforms that were in between the studio, the museum, the art fair, and the gallery space. And that's where the idea of independent began. Well, I have a very quick question. How did you pick the name independent? One of my co-founders actually said, you know, we're looking for a good name and said, how about independent? And I just thought that's perfect. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Was not my idea. Good ideas don't have to be your ideas. I mean, it's a great name. It's funny. I was expecting there to be some elaborate (laughs) brainstorm because it's so true. It speaks to your DNA, to the fair's DNA, in that it's not like a sort of arbitrary name, but it encapsulates the fair's ideology. And so that's why I was curious if, you know, you had this sort of philosophical journey as a team where you said, what do we want to be about? Uh, But that's amazing that it was clearly so, you all were so in tune and intuited the vision that sort of the name and the vision. I mean, Matthew Higgs, you know, really has been sort of, I mean, Matthew Higgs has been key to every aspect of this project. Um, And I like how he describes it. He often says, you know, we we need to represent a true reflection of the art world community. And we have to set up a space, a really create a space where art can be seen on its own terms and people can make connections between things that they wouldn't be able to wow. otherwise. And doing things early and often, like not only just diversity and inclusion, but really taking that a step further You know, we've always been quite early with that. We can always be doing more, obviously, but I definitely feel like, you know, outsider art, you know, 10 years ago was relegated to a different league of galleries. And there was not the democracy of that work being seen on its own terms, on its own merits. And, you know, with Matthew's nominations and support of gallerists that really are experts in that field and have done all of this great work uh, for artists uh, that either have special needs or did not, for whatever reason, have access to opportunity in their lifetime. 
there's been so much revisionist history in a positive sense as a result of these works being featured at the fair and these galleries that are doing this great work being seen as equivalent with other you know, galleries that maybe are more internationally known. And that being able to correct those things has been so important to us. And it's what keeps us going, what keeps us passionate about the project. And it still continues to this day. Remind me, how large is the Independent now? It's, you know, 50-something galleries. When we started, I think the first year we had maybe 35 or 40 galleries. And then we gradually figured out how to use that space in Chelsea. And I think we ended up our last year doing maybe 65 galleries, maybe 70. We also encouraged a lot of collaborations. So there, it was nice to see gallerists like create works or commission bodies of work by artists together. So it was a little bit, you know, and the, the floor plan changed every year. Then we moved down to Tribeca. And we were around 60 galleries, which, you know, was pretty consistent. And now, years later, we're now opening at the Battery Maritime Building, which is a wonderful 1908 historical landmark building. And I think it's a great opportunity to kind of experiment with a new building. And it's a building that's inspiring the artists. We've had, you know, Chase Hall come, who's doing a solo show. We uh, and really get inspired by the building. We've had Sally J. Hahn make a visit with Fortnite Institute. She's also doing a solo. Uh, Bosco Sodi is doing a really magnificent project inspired by the time period of 1900, which also is, happens to be the time period of the building. Uh, and Malevich and this idea of abstraction as a form of social resistance uh, with his social practice side of things. It's just all coming together there for him with the Excel Vervoort presentation. And it's also going to be an interesting place to look at technology. And then there's going to be, you know, several artists making their either New York debut, American debut, or first debut ever. Uh, and are some of our youngest emerging artists are in their late 20s, you know, like Sally J. Hahn and, and Chase Hall, for instance are 28 years old. So it's going to be incredible. One of the aspects I love most about the Independent is, I remember the first time I visited, it feels very different um, than some of the other art fairs that we're more familiar with that sometimes can kind of skew like a little bit Instagram, Instagrammable art, you know, have a lot of curb appeal. It almost resembles more like a biennial or a museum show. So I wondered if you could describe the curatorial process that you and the team go through to kind of pull together this experience uh, year after year. You know, I would say it is more like a biennial process. Matthew is definitely the curator of the biennial. Um, he, He has a vision for galleries that are doing interesting programming and doing working with artists that he finds very, very valuable to today's conversation. And there's always the question, why this, why now, um, which comes up. And that is something that he makes the ultimate decision about. I, I like my role because I feel a little bit like I'm f- back-channeling lots of conversations in fact-finding, on a fact-finding mission for with lots of different things that are happening. And little known fact, Jordan Wolfson actually got his start at Independent. Oh. He, yes, wow. so he showed Con Leche one of his important early videos at Independent, the first Independent, and it was actually the place where David Zwerner 
came in and discovered Jordan and started a dialogue with him. So, you know, Jordan wow. has is the first to say that. I'm not saying, I'm not taking credit for that. That's <laughs> coming from Jordan directly. Um, but, you know, those moments are, are nice as well. Another kind of major differentiator that sticks out in my mind is how inclusive uh, the fair is and how it appeals to, you know, emerging collectors and not just sort of the kind of billionaires at the top. So um, I wondered if you could share with us, like, what are some of the strategies or tactics that you and the team think about to kind of engage that next generation of collectors? You know, that's a tough one. We did a study over at the end of last year with Claire McAndrew, the arts economist who authors the Art Basel Report. And we asked her, we commissioned her to work with us on the New York Collector Study, uh, which was drawn primarily from our collector base. I think our average collector, it's published on our website, it's called the Art Market Report. But I think our average collector age is 60, which actually is quite young compared to the average, the global average. Um, but that's not by any means millennial. Uh, we do have millennial collectors. I would say we're not targeting them directly. I think the fact that this is a fair that's manageable in scale, that's highly curated, that has artists that are as young as 28 years old this year and as old as 99 years old with Robert Barber's uh, work from the 1960s and 70s presented by Carrie Schuss Gallery. Um, that's, that I think we'll, you, we'll have some young collectors interested in Robert Barber's work and we'll have some older collectors interested in the younger emerging artists. And how that all plays out is something that, you know, every year is a bit surprising. But what I'm happy to say is that we are very much thinking about the associative context of how these collectors network and operate and navigate this information. And just one follow-up. I was just sure. curious, um, you said it was the first kind of study that uh, an art fair is commissioned. So were there any surprising data points or insights that came out of that? Oh, so many. Just how much money our collectors spend on art, the average annual budget for art acquisitions was $759,000 a year. Wow. That's significant. And I think that just, yeah, it's like, that just shows that these collectors are, this is not a pastime. This is a serious endeavor. And, and many of those or much of that budget is going toward works that are $50,000 or under. So these are also people that have the ability to collect at any level if they're spending that. But they're choosing to spend at that price point often and regularly for the purposes of discovery and also being a part of something early and getting involved and understanding what is on the horizon. As a very data-driven organization, what are the metrics that you evaluate to continuously optimize the experience year after year? The one thing that I think the big art fairs have failed at is uh, being able to create that stickiness. Uh, there's a sense that there are these collectors out there that you've never met who should be buying from your your gallery and they should be buying your artists. And maybe they do, you know, randomly come in and you sell them something and then you don't know where they go after that. You never hear from them again. It's like, it's really a problem um, that these big fairs are challenged by. 
And what I love about our system is that it's the opposite of that. The question is always the same based on how well are we doing? How, how many first-time buyers have you have and how many of them repeat uh, the first-time buyers last year are still buying from you now? And those numbers and those those numbers for us are very, very high. And if those numbers are not high, we should not be doing this. And also just the quality of of you know the curatorial offering and how and keeping it fresh and keeping it exciting for people and unexpected for people. Well, on the subject of fresh and unexpected and exciting for people to use your words. I hope you will indulge us a little bit. Sure. Um, because towards the the end of every conversation, we switch to one of our favorite sections called Art Kiki. <laughs> Do you know what a kiki is? Yeah. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> so... What do you think, Amitha? You think uh, we are both curious, Elizabeth. We want to know, do you have anything you want to kiki about today? (laughs) Uh, Well, I want to hear from you guys. I mean, what are you you loving about what's going on right now? What What are things that you just feel like need to move on immediately? I mean, I don't know. Should we talk about that? I mean, it could be anything. What do you think, Will? I was going to say, but then I want to push it back to you because I have an idea about what I want to kiki about. Oh, good. But, Let's go with that. But I will say, even though I work for Google, I I can't with NFTs. I just, I'm sorry. And no shade on, M- on NFTs. Like, no shade on that. And I'm sure there are amazing artists doing amazing things and incredible collectors and great institutions. But, and I'm sure I'll be kicking myself for being an NFT, like, abscondee or absconder or whatever. But that's that's my NFTs. <laughs> well, I mean, the perfect antidote to that conversation is to come to the fair and see the listen presentation <laughs> of Corey Archangel and Jody. It's like... For those of you that have newly turned in to the subject of digital media by artists, why not take a look at, you know, the very recent work that brought this all about, which is still alive and well and actually far more substantial. My issue is, again, because the feminist in me just can't stop Good. how completely sexist it, it is and, and racist as well uh, in many NFTs. cases. The work and, and, the, and the kind of yeah. atti- the attitudinal approach to appropriating the work, owning, it just brings up a lot of issues about what it means to, um, you know, buy the work via conquering it on some sort of competition and who has, you know, and the over-predominance of, you know, men buying this work in this particular way by other men uh, who have their own particular views and that's being shown in the work. I can't think of anything less radical than some of the things I'm seeing on NFTs. But that said, you know, let's see how it all plays out. You call them men. I call them bros. I feel like that's such a broy <laughs> part of the art. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. No, well, you said it so I don't have to. Well, the thing I also want to kiki about is I'm like, Elizabeth, is there like a really funny anecdote about you working with John Giorno? I mean, I, I think 
my relationship with John is it, it, it was one of the highlights of my life. But what a lot of people don't know about John is he was hilarious and very, very, very dishy. Very dishy. Ooh. So, yeah. So he would often, we would talk. He was very much a phone person, less of an email person. And so that also accelerated, even though we only knew each other for a decade. It accelerated an intimacy with him very, you know, that was always present. But we would always begin every conversation with, what have you heard? What is the newest <gasps> gossip? <laughs> oh, and, my God. Yes, yeah, let's dish about that. Or you wouldn't believe No wonder what, he didn't want to text. He didn't you want wouldn't believe what I saw last night or I was out because oh he was also out all the time. So it was like, I was out and this happened or this person. And it was always... <laughs> At least 10 minutes of who, what, where, when, and how. No. And, then, and then we got on to, you know, the reason why we're talking and let's, you know, let's let's talk about our work and, and get stuff done. But, and he also was probably the uh, most effortless person I ever worked with in many ways. Like he had already gotten to that place in his life where he didn't need to prove anything to anyone. And it was purely out of joy and collaboration that he did things. And so it made it such a pleasure. He would, I remember when I went, came here to Tutu Bowery to meet him and I was just awestruck because you look at the, at the door and the, and the buttons on the door and it says Linda Bangless and what? <laughs> Michael wow. Greenberg and, you know, John Giorno, the bunker. It's just like, it's just like a who's who of artists. And it's like, whoa, this is like, this is, <laughs> this is old school. I mean, this is like unbelievable. And I walked in, wow. I had met him because he had performed at independent uh, and he had, and I, I couldn't believe the level of, you know, uh, crowd he he pulled in uh, from younger people too, people in their twenties and thirties who were just massive fans, and it was a lot of fun. And and you know we met there, and uh, he Nicole Clausburn had just closed, so he was really without a New York dealer. So I I, I went in after the fair and and did a studio visit with him, and I said, look, you know I there isn't for me there isn't anything more to know. You're like a cultural icon. You are in my mind absolutely. You know, you're the most kind of consequential connection historically between the beat poets, the pop artists, and the gay community in New York's downtown New York during a critical time of the 70s and 80s. Uh, you're mm. an activist. You're, you know, you also, you know, have a musical legacy as, as well as a performance legacy. I said, it just, you know, the question is, what do you want to do? And he was very much like, I've never been more excited about what I'm working on today and the thing I want to make tomorrow. And that's what I want to show. That's what I want to get out in the world. And I said, well, would you like to join the gallery and do a show? And he was looked at me. He just says, yes. <laughs> it was so, <laughs> so perfect in so many oh ways. <sighs> and I just thought, wow, that was easy because, you know, I, I you know, as, as many gallerists could attest, it's like how many... How, how much begging do you have to do in some cases with artists that haven't even really come had a show yet? You know, he didn't get caught up. You know, he didn't, he never sweat the small stuff. It was all about the work and he was at a creative high period. He knew it and he wanted to 
you know, live his life in a way where he could just devote his time to that most importantly. And so that was, that was a wonderful thing. So that's, that's a good John story. There are more. I have to dig them up in my, not go down memory lane. (laughs) I will say that he, you know, sounds like a magnificent human being. We like to conclude every conversation on a positive note. So we ask all our guests, what are you looking forward to in the next six months? Six months. Ooh, there's a there's a, a specific because uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean I you was could about, go more or less. About, but... No, I was about to say the pandemic ending. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, which, which may which isn't definitely not happening on a global scale in the next six months. But um, I think what I'm looking forward to is moving forward, you know, in any way, shape or form, you know, being not being in a place where we're just managing the present, but being able to actually connect more often, more regularly, so that we can all get on with it, you know, because it's been such an intense 18 months. And, and I don't think it's going to take us probably a decade to make sense of what we have all gone through and what it has meant. And I just don't know that it can be understood. So with that as the backdrop, just moving forward and opening a new art season again, you know, in the next six months, uh, independent welcoming, you know, back this incredible community in the next six months, being able to get on an airplane for the first time in the next six months and uh, go to John's show at, uh, I mean, Rush in London and, you know, be there in October and that and seeing, seeing Europe again and seeing the UK again. And the things that I took for granted are now the things that I'm so looking forward to. So that's, that's where my head's at, at the moment, but it could change. Who knows? <laughs> We'll have to check back post-September 12th, which is the final day of the Independent in New York. So definitely reminder to all of our listeners, mark your calendars, September 9th to September 12th, Independent Art Fair in New York. It's going to be exceptional. Thank you for having me. And it's been great to be here. Thank you so much for making the time, Elizabeth. This was such a joy and such a fun conversation really, really a treat. So thanks, Elizabeth, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Art from the Outside. As a friendly reminder, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art from the Outside Podcast. Our sound engineering is by Hanger Studios. Photography by Enrique Vega and original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.